Once again, thanks for listening to the Park Hills podcast. If you have more questions or you want more answers, I would suggest starting by going to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. So this week, I'm just flying solo. I've got a couple of things to bring up, a couple of things to think about that I'll throw your way. And if you've got any questions on them, you know, email me, chris.stukenberg at parkhillsefc.org. Even if you spell my name wrong, you know, you put a C in the, the Stukenberg part or you put too many U's or too few E's, we've pretty much geared it up that you'll still end up getting me the email. So don't worry about the spelling. Although, um, you know, I've have seen my name spelled really poorly in years past. So, but I'd love to uh, dig into this more with you if you want, or if you have an idea or a thought that you think would be great to dig into this further, further into Mark, I'd love to hear it because we'll, we'll jump right in. But the verse I want to look at today is uh, Mark seven thirty six, and then I'll give you a couple different rabbit trails to go down and think about, and then we'll close this podcast up. But here's what the verse says. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. This is a comment that seems strange for a couple different reasons, and I'll, I'll unpack it. I kind of try to do this in the sermon, unpacking it, but... It seems weird that first Jesus tells people not to tell them what he's all about, what he's doing, right? He is telling people, don't go tell others about what I'm doing. I don't want them to hear it. That seems to be contradictory to what the evangelist's job is, right? So Mark, Luke, John, and Matthew, we would call them the evangelists, the people who are speaking the gospel or the good news. That's what the word evangel means. So we would say, okay, well, why is why are they not supposed to share it? Why are they not supposed to talk about it? And that seems weird. And then secondly, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So if God is going to give us a command and we don't follow it, and the more he commands us, the more we actually go the opposite direction, what do you do with that? You have to sort of unpack it. So let me start with just a couple of things. First of all, I think we need to remember when we're reading the Gospels that this is happening while Jesus is walking on earth, he has not died on the cross yet at this point. So when he's telling people, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, that doesn't mean that you and I aren't supposed to tell people. That doesn't mean that you and I aren't supposed to proclaim it from the mountaintops. We have the whole story, but at the time, the whole story wasn't given yet. And so when Jesus is saying, don't, don't say anything yet, you clearly see that they are saying something at some point, right? The gospel writers... 10, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 years after the time of Jesus's life are beginning to write and they're saying things. You know, John's final gospel, at least I think it was the final gospel, would have been written almost 100 years after Jesus was born. And so he's looking back at what has happened and considering it over the last 50 or 60 years and saying, here's my perspective on this. Here's my understanding. And we need to kind of talk about it. So he throws that out. And so I think the first thing that we need to think about is the Gospels are written after the, the resurrection of Jesus, so the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, but they're describing events that are happening while Jesus is on earth. And one of the main reasons why 
this is a problem is why would Jesus tell people that he doesn't want people to know? Why would Jesus be describing this as sort of a secret? What is so secret about the Messiah? Well, let's start there and just kind of unpack this for a second. The word Messiah or Mashiach in Hebrew means anointed one. And you'll occasionally hear individuals talking about different anointed ones. Throughout the Bible history itself, there are a number of anointed ones. David is an anointed one. Technically, Saul is an anointed one, right? He's anointed by the Lord to be the king. And so he is anointed. We see this in the book of Judges. There's a number of individuals who have a special anointing from the Lord, and they are given to be judges or leaders over the people for a period of time. So what matters about Jesus being the anointed one or the Messiah is that Jesus is claiming to have his pedigree from the line of David. And so David's really the the key anointed one or, or you know, Mashiach in the Old Testament. He saves Israel from herself. He becomes a great king, does some tremendous things. And so the disciples and everybody else in the world at the time of Jesus are looking for someone who's going to come along and be this anointed one, someone who has been anointed by God to do something special or specific for a period of time. And what they believed the anointed one was going to do, and they had good reason to believe this. There's so many passages in the Old Testament that talk about this. I'm not going to give you all the verses here, but you can type it in and find it really easily. You go, go to Google and just type in uh, you know, Messiah in the Old Testament, and you'll see all the different passages that come up for this. What they believed was that there was a king coming from the line of David who was going to free Israel from the bondage of the world. You understand how that means that most people would be looking for a military commander. That also makes sense in a few weeks when we look at James and John wanting to sit at Jesus's right and left hand. Why? How important it is that they would think the Messiah is coming to rule the world and to wipe out the nations. In fact, some have pointed out this might be why Satan is tempting Christ three times in the wilderness temptation, because one of the things he says is, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. They've been given to me and I'm going to give them to you now. I'm going to give you access to them. So it's interesting that, first of all, that Satan thinks he has the right to do that. And second, he's handing them to the person that most of us believe is already in charge. So how can we believe that he's in charge if he didn't win a great military victory? And how can he not take the bait from Satan if he already owns it all? You understand the the problem there. Why would Satan be saying, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if we know that Jesus owns them all already? And the fact is what the Old Testament seemed to be telling us is that this Mashiach needs to come along. This Messiah needs to come along, this anointed one who is going to wrestle away the kingdoms of the world from the powers that be. So we're looking for an anointed one. We're looking for a Messiah. We're looking for someone who's a, a military commander, uh, the, the, the one who's going to sit on the throne of David and rule the nations with love and justice that we see in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere. And we're looking for someone who's going to draw all the nations to himself. And so in some sense, what Satan is doing there is saying, all right, I'll give it, I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward this for you. I'll let you have them. All you have to do is worship me. Well, clearly that's not this, the recipe for success for the actual Mashiach, for the actual Messiah. And the fact that Jesus doesn't take the bait tells us that he's a, he is the type of Messiah we need, the one that's not going to take the bait from the enemy party, and he's going to stick with the victor. However, 
you can understand then how the disciples and others would be thinking the Messiah is going to come and beat the powers of the world. They also believed at the time that the powers of the world were run by individuals who, you know, were were evil. And so they could see that Rome, in a sense, epitome, you know, was sort of the epitome of Satan or Babylon was the epitome of Satan. And so since they've had all these exiles, they would say, well, in order for us to be truly with God, we need to wipe out the powers of the world. And if we wipe out the powers of the world, then we will have power again and the Messiah will rule and this will be great. And they're totally neglecting all of it, all of what the Messiah could potentially do. And part of the reason why they're neglecting what the Messiah could potentially do is something that Bart Ehrman, who's a you know, a scholar who pushes back on most of what I believe as far as a Christian goes, he, he would say the reason why this matters and the reason why Mark has to employ what we call the messianic secret is that there is nothing in the Old Testament about a Savior dying for the sins of the world. Now, at this point, I would push back and say there's some amazing work being done right now by a couple of scholars, and they are incredibly helpful. Um and I'll give you their names in just a second. But what they're doing, just to kind of show you what they're doing first before I give you their names, is they are showing us that in the Old Testament, there is more than enough stuff that's talking about what Jesus was going to do as the suffering servant Messiah that we end up seeing him become. Some biblical scholars like I said, like Bert Ehrman and others who would say Jesus never claimed to be Messiah and his disciples just add this to him upon his death. And therefore they throw out most of what the New Testament says about Jesus or what the, the disciples are trying to say about Jesus. They would say Jesus never claimed to be Messiah and that he never claimed to be Messiah because he, he couldn't have claimed to be Messiah because Messiah was not supposed to die for the sins of the world. But Crispin Fletcher Lewis is one and he's the director of uh, the Wymanity Research and Training at Oxford and King's College, Durham, Westminster Theological Center. Uh, all that is tied to Oxford. Um, he's doing some tremendous work on Christological origins. And what he's doing, uh, I think I just said Oxford, but it's King's College in London. What he's doing is writing books on Jesus and monotheism and the Christological origins of Jesus being who he says he is. And what he's doing is showing us that in the Old Testament, there was enough information telling us that the Messiah was going to be one who was going to come and who was going to fix the problem of sin and death once and for all. There, there was enough in the Old Testament. It's just not forefront. It's not the top shelf. It's not what people would expect it to be. It's not easily accessible. You have to dig a little bit. You have to spend a little time. But then what the disciples do, and and what I believe the gospel writer Mark is doing, is is giving us access to this information, saying, here's one of the reasons why we think he's Messiah. Here's why Jesus proves that he's Messiah, and so on and so forth. I think it's an amazing case to be made, and I would suggest reading his stuff, although I'll tell you it's quite heady and can be a little bit difficult for some of us to access. So here's what he's saying. What Crispin Fletcher Lewis is saying is that in the Old Testament, there's enough passages that talk about the suffering servant Messiah and how he's going to come and lay down his life so that we might have freedom. I think it's amazing. And uh, 
yeah, I, th- I think it would look into it and, and dig into it. Sorry, I'm looking for one other thing while I'm doing this. But the the idea that that there's stuff in the Old Testament that tells us that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to fix the problem once and for all. And part of what Crispin Fletcher Lewis is saying is here's the scholarship that proves without a doubt that the Christological origins that the the disciples are, are tying into isn't just radical. It isn't new. It doesn't just show up one day because Jesus claimed a couple things. And now his disciples try to attach that to him, that the Old Testament actually was pointing us directly to this individual. One other scholar that I would point out is his name is Dr. David Mitchell. And he wrote a couple of different books that are on the Messiah Ben Yosef or Jesus, the incarnation of the word. Uh, these are a little easier to handle than some of Crispin's work, but please understand, both of these are phenomenal scholars who are doing a great job. And what the Messiah Ben Yosef is talked about by David Mitchell is the Messiah Ben Yosef is a, a category or a messianic profile, we would call it, in the Old Testament that talks about how the Messiah is going to come and he's actually going to be from the line of Joseph as well. Uh, it's not saying that he's directly attached to Joseph, but the idea that Joseph, the way that Joseph led, the, the way that Joseph did things, um, is this Messiah that we're looking for. And the Talmud speak of this figure called Messianic, Messiah Ben Yosef, or the Mashiach Ben Yosef, who, here's some of the, te- the, the categories for this individual. They would come from Galilee, their goal was to die, be pierced by enemies at the gate of Jerusalem, and that death confronts Satan, atones for sin, and abolishes death itself. So the fact that there is a category for this in the Old Testament is out there. It's totally out there. And so part of the reason why some have suggested that Jesus is trying to keep things silent, and, and so far I've just thrown a bunch of random things at you. Let me try to you know, pull it together for you here. One of the reasons why some have pointed out that Jesus is asking people not to say anything isn't so much because he doesn't want people to know that he is who he is, that it's more that he's afraid people are going to mistake what he's really trying to do, that they're going to think he's bringing a military conquest. And what will happen is that actually doesn't serve the purposes of God at all. And so in that sense, we need to sort of trust that Yahweh has a better idea of what he wants to do through his son than what humans would want. And so when he's saying, folks, I need you to be quiet and don't say anything about this. Again, it has less to do with him actually wanting people to be silent and more to do with the fact of, hey, I want you to consider I'm not going to do what you think I'm going to do. And so he might have been suppressing expectations or he might have been saying, this is going a different route than you think it's going. Or it's possible that all in all, he knew, as foreknowledge will do for you, all the ways in which people would be misrepresenting him and so forth, so on and so forth throughout the world. And he's saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. Then when he dies on the cross, rises from the grave and proves to his disciples, here's what the Old Testament said about me. Let me show you the ways in which I am the Messiah Ben Yosef, or I am actually the suffering servant Messiah you're looking for. Then all of a sudden the scales fall off people's eyes and he goes, now go tell everybody. And that's exactly what they did. So again, we need to read the gospels understanding that they were written uh, about a time before his death, burial, and resurrection, but they are written in a time after it. So they're, they're looking back saying, okay, Jesus kept telling us to keep the secret. But what I find amazing also is the disciples, the people who are closest to Jesus in his ministry here on earth, still don't get it until he rises from the grave. And even then, some of them don't get it until he has to appear to them. So there's something absolutely amazing going on here. We call it the messianic secret and Mark is kind of asking the question of like, what is going on? What, 
why is he hiding this from people? And why does he keep telling people that they're, they don't, he doesn't want them to know anything? I think the most plausible explanation is clearly Jesus knew exactly what he was here to do. He was here to die, rise from the grave, save the world from its own sin, and then he would return victorious as the conquering king later. There are two profiles happening in the Old Testament simultaneously, both talking about the same person, and Jesus is going to fulfill them both. But his first step in, in redeeming humanity was not to conquer the kingdoms of the world. His first step in, in redeeming humanity was to die on the cross and be the, the servant that we find out about in the end of Isaiah, who is drawing the nations back to himself. So instead of conquering the nations and wiping them out for their sin, he actually gives them freedom from their sin and calls them back to himself. That's part of what Paul's cluing into in Acts 17 when he's talking to the, the people in the Areopagus and saying, you know, you are far from God and you serve this unknown God that you don't even know. He loves you so much that he died and through himself as a man has given you a pathway back to him, which is what the plan was the whole time. Now, the next time he arrives, you need to be ready for him because when he comes back, he's going to be the conquering king who's not going to be fun to be around if you don't love him. But then the second thing to think about is, the, you know, that was the whole first part of the, the podcast. And the second part is, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. As I mentioned in the sermon, someone has a joke. Humans don't obey God very well. And that's true. And part of that is you have to expect humans to tell people what amazing things happened to them. So some have suggested that maybe this is a test Jesus is giving people to see if they're really going to follow through or not. But there's a ton of grace and a ton of mercy when people don't pass the test. So when a deaf person comes home and can speak now and his parents say, what happened to you? He doesn't necessarily need to keep it quiet, uh, but Jesus gives him the test. Even him failing the test, ironically, just builds up Jesus's glory. And so one of the questions that came to me this past week was, what do you do with the fact that it seems like they're disobeying Jesus and all that does is actually makes Jesus more famous, Right. That's kind of the beauty of this test that God is telling his people, I don't want you to say anything yet. Just hold it to yourself for now. And if they do that, then he is honored. If they don't do it, ironically, he's honored all the more. It's kind of this interesting dynamic that you see playing out in the text. And what's funny is the whole gospel story is that Jesus keeps doing this thing and people keep thinking he definitely is the Messiah. He's this Messiah who's coming to conquer the world. That's part of the reason why Palm Sunday is so great. They're, they're excited to welcome the king of Israel and bring him in and, and have it go this direction. Uh, the problem is he, just a few days later, is crucified. And upon doing that, he ironically, according to Colossians 2, flips the world on its head and becomes the savior we need rather than the savior we're looking for. So something to think about when you think about first the, the idea of Jesus being Messiah, I gave you a couple different paths to think about there. If you want more clarification, any of those, like I said, email me. Uh, and then second, I think the important thing is to think humans definitely are not good at following the orders of God. But ironically, when they don't follow God's order here, he actually is made more famous. I think that's pretty amazing. 